continuing in our series um, called, Huh? Uh, Strange Stories in the Bible. And today we're in Numbers 22, verse 21 through 31. And it's the story of Balaam's donkey, Balaam's donkey. So another strange tale in the Bible. Uh, and I had a heart personally just to do passages, to preach on passages that I never get to preach on and never and maybe sometimes avoid um, because they're so strange or so awkward, uh, they're hard to preach from. Um, so this is another one of those strange passages and um, a talking donkey. How absurd um, is that? How strange is that? That, you know, in the Bible, there's probably only two um, animals that speak, right? So you have the serpent. Um, in Genesis, and then you have Balaam's donkey. So those are the two animals that actually speak and communicate uh, to humans. So it catches your attention, right? It's very, it's very strange and very weird. Um, but in reflecting on this passage, um, an image, the image or the passage, another passage stuck out to me, and that was um, the one with Jesus when the little children are coming to Jesus. Do you remember that? And it's interesting to me that that story, um, there's posters of it. Um, it's oftentimes told in Sunday school, right, to little kids. Hey, little kids, you can come to Jesus. And there's uh, posters of Jesus, a blonde and blue-eyed Jesus, maybe with a lamb on top of his shoulders and all the kids, like, coming to him. And he's gentle and the kids have rosy cheeks and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, we love you, Jesus. But actually, if you think about it, that story is for adults, right? It's not necessary for children. Yes, children, Jesus welcomes you. Jesus is not too big of a person, not too aloof, not too separate from you for you to approach him. But really, the lesson is for the disciples in the passage, right? The disciples are like, this is ridiculous. Jesus is too important. Jesus is too busy. Jesus does not have time for you kids. You haven't even washed your hands. Are you wearing masks? Like, don't come to Jesus. He's too busy, right? But the lesson is for the disciples. Jesus says, wait a second. Let the children come to me. Because unless your heart is like them... You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what we see in Jesus' words is this absurdity, right? As the writer in 1 Corinthians says, God uses the foolishness, right? The foolish in this world to humble the wise. Inherent in who Jesus is, what Jesus is about, right? Jesus as a savior is to, in the world's eyes, what Jesus is and who he is is absurd and foolish to the world's eyes. The world says, these people are important. This is important. Power is important. This has status. Whereas Jesus says, no, I'm going to turn that upside down. And that's what uh, the meaning of that is. That in the kingdom of heaven, right, the things that are wise are made foolish, right? That... Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, turns our values upside down. And the fact that children are coming to Jesus goes from the disciples being annoyed. Oh, this is obnoxious. This is absurd. These are silly little children. Jesus has no time for this to 
Actually, this is the centerpiece. This is the foundation of what it means to follow me. And in fact, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have a heart like this little child. So I think more than in Sunday school, that story should be told, should be preached in churches all the time to adults. Amen? Um, But our story today comes from the book of Numbers. Um, And just as context, how many of you have read through the book of Numbers? Oh, wow. Good job. Good job. It's not a book like I think I've attempted when I was growing up. I attempted many, many times to start the book of Numbers, just like Leviticus, right? And then you get into it and you're kind of like, ah, no. But there's some great stories in Numbers. Um, And actually in Hebrews, Numbers sounds like, you know, is it about math or is this like, you know, uh, a mathematical or analytical book? But actually in Hebrew, the book is called Into the Wilderness. So it sounds more like a journey, right? And Numbers kind of talks about uh, the people of Israel post-Exodus. After leaving Egypt, they're going from Mount Sinai where they received the commandments and the presence of God is there and leading them into the promised land. And we know that because of the people's faithlessness, right, not trusting God, whining through the desert, even though God time after time delivers them, time after time guides them, time after time provides for them, they continue to whine and rebel and say, no, God, we're we're better off in Egypt. Why are we here? Why did you bring us here to die? And as a result of their faithlessness, they end up, and we all know it, right? They end up wandering the wilderness for how many years? 40 years, right, before they actually entered the promised land. So a whole generation lives and dies before they're able to enter the promised land, which was first promised, the covenant given to Abram, right? I'll lead your people. I'll make you a great people and lead you into the land. Um, But in chapter 22, uh, where we find the story of Balaam's donkey, um... We find the Israelites in the midst of their wanderings and trials in the wilderness. And they've ended up settling along the east banks of the Jordan River. So, you know, they're crossing Jordan, right? They crossed Jordan to go into the Promised Land. But now they're just on the banks of the Jordan River. And at this time, this land was occupied by the Moabites. The Moabites are the people that occupy this land. And... um, The king of the Moabites is Balak. But I'm going to read our passage really quick here. Not quickly, intentionally. (laughs) I'm going to read this passage quickly. So I'm going to read uh, Numbers 22, verses 21 through 31, Balaam's donkey. And growing up, you always heard this as, it's interesting to me culturally, like, or even in church with kids in the room, like, ah, growing up, I was always called Balaam's ass, right? An ass is a donkey. Balaam's ass, Balaam's ass, but I feel a little uncomfortable, so it's like, we'll call it Balaam's donkey, right? And uh, I'm stealing this joke from a pastor I listened to, but, uh, you know, we know a lot of donkeys in our lives, right? So. <laughs> Uh, 
the live stream went out loud. Um, but verse, starting from verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, What have I done to make you beat me these three times? I was thinking about reading this in the voice of Eddie Murphy, but I decided against it. What have I done to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he said, The angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn. So he bowed low and, face, and fell face down. So just as a matter of context, like I was saying, this people have uh, come to settle in, on the coast of Jordan, which, is now, which was now, at that time, occupied the Moabites, by the Moabites. And the king of the Moabites was Balak, son of Zippor. And the passage earlier, earlier on in verse 2, it says that now Balak, son of Nippur, saw that the Israel what that Israel had done to the Amorites, because the Israelites are going through the land and people are feeling threatened by them, the, the natives are feeling threatened by them, and they're attacked, and they prevail against, God helps them to prevail. Um, so people are, the, the word is going out. The, the people of God, these Israelites, they're tough, they're good fighters, and God is, the God is behind them. And so people feel afraid and threatened. Um, and it says that ba- Balak, verse 3, was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. Here are these strangers. Here are these people, refugees, if you will, or immigrants into the land. Um, and they're filling the people who are there with dread because there's so many of them camped out at the border, right? Wanting to go in, wanting. And, and, and the language is even interesting, right? The, the Moabites said to the elders of the Midian, the horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. You can write his stories and stories and stories throughout history of 
people um, in a land feeling threatened by other people coming because what? They're going to lick up the resources of our land. They're going to take our jobs. They're going to, right? They're going to run us over. They're going to overcome us. In fact, this is the same sentiment of the people of Egypt, right? Pharaoh and Egypt, in the first place, the reason why the Hebrews were enslaved in the first place is what? Because they were multiplying, multiplying, having children, right? The, 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 the Hebrew women were very prolific in having children, and the Egyptians felt threatened, right? They're taking over. They're becoming too numerous. Let's oppress them. Let's enslave them. And that's what the people of Israel are escaping but as they're coming into these new lands and interacting, interfacing with different people, that same feeling of threat, like, oh my gosh, they are so numerous. Oh my gosh, they're going to eat up our land. They're going to take our resources. They're going to take over. So that becomes a source of violence or that becomes the source, the motivation for attacking the people of God. Um, so Balak, what he does, this is his plan, his great grand plan is he sends an entourage to Mesopotamia, which is really, it's not close, it's far. It's like going to Spokane. Is that Spokane like 500 miles maybe? I don't know. It's 500 miles to Mesopotamia to enlist the services of Balaam. And Balaam is a famous, he's like land-renowned soothsayer. Like prophet, soothsayer, um, predictor of the future. And he's known, and, and Balak even says this, you're known for like whoever you curse becomes cursed. Whoever you bless is blessed. And so what Balak's plan is, is I'm going to send an entourage of people to Balaam and ask him to come. I'll pay him a lot of money. I'll give him riches to curse the people of Israel. And when Balaam curses the people of Israel, I will be able to defeat them in battle. So he's like, yes, I've got Balaam, the famous soothsayer, on my side. So he goes, sends people to grab him. Balaam, the people come to Balaam, and Balaam's like, wait a second. Let me go listen to my God. Let me go listen to God and see what he says before I come with you. And so overnight, God visits Balaam and says, don't go with them in verse 12 of chapter 22. Don't go with these guys. So Balaam in the morning comes back to this entourage sent by King Balak and says, no, my God says, no, I can't go with you. I'm not going to curse the people of Israel. Um, so they go back. They travel back to Seattle from Spokane, back to Balak and said, he said No. And Balak insists, hey, tell him, let's up the ante. And some of us might think, oh, Balaam, he's really greedy and shrewd with money, right? It's like when someone's putting an offer on your house, if you're selling your house, for instance, and you're like, no, like, you up it, right? You up the price, and you're, or you hold out, like, I'm not going to sell it. And you're hoping that the offer, you know, comes in higher, and so you're like, let's see. So maybe Balak was sincerely listening, or Balaam was sincerely listening to God, or it was his way of kind of stalling and saying, no, I need more. Uh, but anyways, 
Balak sends his men back. They go back to Spokane. And they're like, here, we're going to offer you more. And um, Balaam says, even if Balak was to offer me all the riches of his household, everything, I will not go against what God told me. But later that night, verse 20, God actually says, go with them. So, okay, first he said, don't go with them. Now, go with them. Maybe God's just saying, he says, go with them. Do exactly as I tell you. Say exactly what I tell you to say. So, now we're at verse 22, and Balaam's going back with these men to go to Balak and to curse the Israelites. But it says, as he's going, verse 22, God was very angry when he went. This in itself is unusual and strange, right? First God says, don't go with them. Then God says, go with them. And then when Balaam goes, God is angry, very angry with them. It's like, what is going on? What's happening? What, why this shift of heart? Why the change of heart? And I think Balaam does go with the men. And he is, you know, on a surface level, um, obeying God in the sense that God said, go with them. Um, but God is angry because we can assume that God knows the heart of Balaam, right? God knows that what's in Balaam's heart is still perhaps set on greed and earning the reward that Balak has, right? That it's not like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to do what God told me to do. It's more like, oh, God said yes, and now I can go and I can get, you know, I can be a prophet for hire. I can be this hired gun, and I'll get the money and please God at the same time. Yes! And so God is very angry. And so we have this whole um, interaction on the road. And we know throughout Scripture that a lot of things happen on the road, right? On the road to Jericho, right? On the road, uh, what else? The walk to Emmaus, right? On the road to Emmaus, on this road, on that road. And we also know in the Bible that there's many, 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 many stories that have the number three in them, right? What are some, what are some uh, ways that the Bible uses the number three? What? Trinity, Trinity yeah, three. Trinity, Jesus died and rose again and what? Do we have to go through a Bible lesson again? No. Three days. Uh, Jonah was in the belly of the whale. How, how long? Three days. Uh, what? Three wise men. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> um, what else was there? Uh, if you look at call narratives, right? The calling of Samuel. There's three. God says, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel, 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 like the third time Samuel finally says, here I am, God, send me. Saul, when he converts on the road, um, he's blind for three days, right? He's blind for three days before, was it blind or mute? Blind uh, before, you know, God lets him see again. So there's this, there's kind of this... Uh, Motif in three of this journey of a journey, a journey from death to life, from nothingness, 
suffering. I mean, Christ is the ultimate example of that. Christ died and rose again in three days. So here, um, with Balaam's donkey, three times on the way, on this journey, right? God is into the journey, the process of how our hearts are transformed. What happens on the way? We're going from point A to point B, but on the way, my heart is changed. On the way, Saul becomes Paul. On the way, Jesus goes from death to life. On the way, Jonah goes from the belly of the whale and is spit out again into new life. There's new life on the way, amen? So in our own lives, we may have those three days of death and darkness, and despair, and not knowing. Three days in the belly of the whale, three days in a tomb, and be like, I don't know what's going on. And in those three days, or for Paul, 11 months, right? 11 months of what is going on. God is doing a work of renewal. That's what we believe. That when we die, we're alive again. Right? When we suffer we die and we rise again. That is the journey of faith. That's what happens in the three. The miracle of God breathing life into us again happens and is allowed to happen. It's that process. And seldom, I mean, miracles happen instantaneously. We hear about it all the time. Many of us have witnessed it. But also miracles happen over time, right? Sometimes time is that thing, right? It's the oven or the um, slow cooker in which our souls seep, which God is allowed to do a good work where we're transformed and where we're renewed again on the road and on the journey. Amen. Are you with me, church? And what happens is that Balaam is not able to see the angel with the sword standing in the path, blocking the way. But the donkey is. And so the donkey veers off the first time. And Balaam, mind you, he's with these men, this entourage, these entourage, right? And if it's... Um, so he ends up beating, right? Beating the donkey. Very, very violent, very abusive. Why are you making a fool out of me? Come on. Like, what's up with you? The next time, they go back on, on the path, and the donkey sees the angel again. And this time, he veers off and crushes Balaam's leg against the wall. It's like, ah! Like, what? What's going on? You know, Balaam's angry at the donkey. Just, you see his frustration, Right? And isn't that our response in life when things don't go our way, right? When things don't, like, I experience that all the time with my kids, right? I imagine getting out of the house and being ready to go and getting to destination point B under 20 minutes. Does it ever happen? No, it never happens because people are sitting on their phone. They've lost their shoes the whole time, the other kid finally raises her hand and says, I need to go potty. And you're like, we need to get out of the house. Why aren't your clothes on? Right? It never goes the way we plan, and we get frustrated. 
right? We get frustrated when we're so driven on our agendas and the things that we want to do. We get frustrated when there's bumps in the roads or things that are keeping us from doing that. I feel this honestly all the time as a church planter where when you're first starting off, it's like, you, I started the church. Everyone's following me. Like, no one knows what they're doing. So whatever I say goes to now we have a leadership and they're all smart people and competent people. And sometimes they say, no, we can't do this, Dave. I'm like, you know, my heart, I, but I, like, I've been praying about this. Like, it's my idea. Like, I envisioned this. Why can't we just go? Go, 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 go. Right? And they're like, no, Dave. Like, ah, and I can feel that frustration, like, but that's a good thing, right? Like, like, that's what makes a church a church. Like, if we did whatever you said all the time, we'd be in disaster, right? And that's the frustration that Balaam's feeling, right? I'm going to make, I'm going to my gig, and I'm going to make bank. And I'm in, in this entourage, and they, I'm a famous soothsayer. They're revering me. The king came, sent people miles and miles to grab me, a person with prestige. When I bless people, they're blessed. When I curse people, they're cursed. And this donkey, <laughs> so he's mad at the donkey. And finally, the third time, the donkey just lays down in the middle of the road. And Balaam's like, ah, you're making me look like a fool. That's so interesting, right? That what's important to Balaam at that point is his image, what he looks like in front of people. Like, I, you're making me look like a fool. You little donkey, you're just an animal. You're making me look like a fool, right? Like the disciples saying to the children, Jesus is too important, right? There's no time for a little, you know, you little children. Right? He's too important for you. Don't embarrass him. Don't make him look like a fool. And Balaam is feeling this, and he's angry and he's angry, and finally, the donkey starts talking, <laughs> right? The donkey was like, hee and then all of a sudden was like why are you persecuting me why are you beating me why are you doing this to me like have I ever done this treated you like a fool why are you beating me and it's so hilarious because Balaam doesn't skip a beat it's like my donkey's talking. You would expect that, right? He just starts talking back to the donkey. Oh, my donkey's talking. I'll talk back. Well, you da 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 da. You're not listening to me. What's your problem? And so they have this conversation. And uh, the donkey says, verse 30, am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Donkey, <laughs> have I been in the habit of doing this, making you look like a fool? Balaam's like, no. <laughs> it makes him think. And then it says, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, right? The blind receive sight. 
And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and face, face, uh, fell face down. And basically the angel of the Lord asked Balaam, why are you beating your donkey today <laughs> these three times? Why are you doing it these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. But you, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went back with Balak's officials. So I'll let you uh, read further uh, on your own time. Numbers 22, or Numbers 23. Balaam goes back to Balak, and they gather the people. Balak's like, let's gather all the people, and I want you to curse the Israelites. And so uh, there's like different stages. Um, But actually, Balaam even though Balak says curse them, he can't. He, he hears from the Lord and he begins to prophesy and he gives like five blessings, four or five blessings uh, to the people of Israel, right? And it's beautiful stuff, the, these blessings. So I encourage you to go, go read those blessings. Um, but that in and of itself preaches, right? That in itself is amazing that in the midst of the people wandering in the desert because of their faithlessness, even so, God is defending the covenant, right? Even so, when people, the enemies of Israel, are looking to curse and defeat the Israelites, even as they're wandering and in punishment, right? Like they say, uh, all the parenting experts say, you know, when you're punishing your children, you may get upset, but... Try to always communicate while you're punishing them that you still love them, right? And that's, that's what we see with God here. That even though they're wandering, even though they're in punishment, they've been faithless. Still, when Balak is trying to go after them, when Balak is wanting to hire a hired gun to curse them, God uses a donkey the absurdity of a donkey to change Balaam's path and then he uses Balaam instead of cursing to bless the people of Israel. He flips the entire script, right? He flips the script totally different and God blesses his people. God blesses his people and we feel like that all the time that maybe I'm out of God's graces. Maybe things are hard and I feel like I'm being punished by God. Right? My aunt used to say to me when we were growing up, every time we stubbed your foot or like got hurt somehow, she'd be like, God punish you. Right? Basically like that happened because God is punishing you, right? And uh, I say that to my kids now, like when Isaiah stubs his toe, God punished you. It's not really theologically correct or good at all, but like it has as if, you know, it works. Um, where was I going with that? Even though we feel like we're being punished, even though we feel like we're on parole, parole, 
Even though we feel like we're in the doghouse, God still unconditionally loves you, is with you, remembers his promises, is wanting you to return, is wanting, is opening his arms wide open. Amen? That God loves you. God loves us. Last week, I spoke about the big three. Do you guys remember what the big three is? Sex, money, power. Right? And I could probably ask you guys, name a scandal for me. Name 20 scandals for me in 30 seconds. And we could probably name, you know, 20 people who have fallen from grace, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the corporate world, whether it's in the church. You, I'm pretty sure you guys could name 20 people right now, and current ones, who have fallen from grace in a scandal because it happens all the time. And usually the reason why it happens is because sex, money, and power. That rulers or leaders struggle. There's vulnerability in holding these things well, holding money well, holding power well, right? holding our sexuality well. And it's very easy when, when the pressure's on, when there's stresses in life, um, to fall in terms of those three things. And um, there's three movies in my life um, that have kind of mentored me in that aspect. One, because I like, like war and swords and fighting and kung fu. But one is Braveheart. The other is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I know these are dated. And the other one is the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Remember what happens in Braveheart? His, parent, his family is all, all killed. His uncle comes and adopts him, right? And he, the kid, he, William Wallace is a kid, and he really wants to learn how to use a sword. He's like, teach me how to use the sword, right? And his uncle says, first, you must learn how to use this before you learn how to use this, right? And so he becomes educated. And like the culmination of that is when the beautiful French princess, right, he's talking with her and she thinks he's a barbarian and then he's, he breaks out in French, right? We can speak in French if you prefer. It's like, ooh, that's awesome, right? A renaissance man. Um, crouching hit, tiger, hidden dragon. What's that? The special sword in that. The green destiny, right? And everyone's after the green destiny, and there's this interaction between two people and one person's like, you cannot hold the green destiny in stillness. You must hold it in stillness. So this aspect of like, we want to rush into that power of the sword, the power of taking control, power of holding the throne. But first, our character has to match that. We must be honed and trained and have the ability to wield it. Otherwise, we'll only be destructive Right? And then the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Um, it takes a hobbit to take the ring, right? There's this, there's this journey. They have to take the ring and ring of power and destroy it in the fires of Mordor, right? But no one can decide who's going to take it. So the, the dwarves are like, you elves, you pointy ear, you know, you, the elves are like, you short dwarves, like, and they're fighting and they're fighting, everyone's fighting. And finally, the hobbit is like, I will take the ring. 
though I do not know the way, right? And Gandalf turns and his eyes are all soft. I'm like, yes, that's the answer. Because a hobbit is humble. A hobbit lives a peaceful, simple life. A hobbit would not be destroyed or as tempted to be destroyed by the power of the ring because the hobbit doesn't have that ambition, right? And the hobbit has the secret, right? I don't know the way. I need help. And I need to be guided. There's a humility in that. It takes a hobbit to lead the way. So in my own discipleship, in my own leadership journey, these images um, have been important to me because I've been that boy that wants to swing the sword, right? I've been the person that wants to have the ring of power um, and use it right away or say, I can do it. I know I can do it. Put me in charge. But there's always a process and always a journey along the way. And so what's the takeaway from this? And there are many. There are many takeaways because I think, you know, this is not a simple story. And I think simple stories you can draw like one moral. The moral of the story is this. Right? But more complex stories... You can draw a lot of things. The more complex the story, the more you can draw from it. Right? That's why this is a strange story. Um, on a simple level, you can say, who are the donkeys, the donkeys in your life, right? Who are those uh, obnoxious people, right? You wouldn't expect it because you don't give them the time of day. But maybe God has sent them in your life as messengers, to take you off the course you're going and to teach you something. But you're ignoring them because what, they're a kid or, you know, you don't respect them or they're some weirdo, absurd person. But the dark God uses the asses in our life, right, to annoy us, but for a purpose, like to change course, right? And usually that frustrates us, right? But then we realize, oh, they're right as hard it is as it is to admit it. The other very simple, you know, I've seen people preach this is, you know, if God can use an ass, right, he can use you, right? Basically, right, God uses a donkey, the very absurd, like, nothing, you know, to do his will. And so if God wants it to happen... He can make it happen. And if you feel like you're a donkey, like you're just, some people just ride you, step on you, right? Beat you with sticks. But God can use you. I don't like that one because I don't think we're the donkey. <laughs> like, um, but I like, you know, the 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, and the coming to God, the kingdom of heaven with childlike heart, right? 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Right? That God uses the absurd things to change the world. Right? God almost uses the joke. Right? This donkey that speaks is like this absurd joke that changes the whole course of things 
It moves uh, from the people of Israel being cursed to blessed. Just like the gospel. Like the gospel good news is, right? The powers of the world would kill Jesus, right? The powers of the world rule the day. The, the empire rules the day. But God took the most absurd thing, the weakest thing, the most humble thing. Jesus was born in a manger. Jesus died on a cross, right? It, it's this joke even that he plays on the world. Like you think these, this is the crowd. This is the place of power or importance or significance. But Jesus, the most humble, the king of the Jews, turns it all around. Right? And so when we read all throughout Scripture, a way to read it is with the lens of the gospel in mind. Like wherever you read, Jesus is there, right? The gospel good news is there. In Balaam's donkey, we see the absurd, the unexpected, the least likely miracle speaking the most powerful truth. And that's what we see in Jesus, right? That it isn't the celebrity, right? It isn't glamorous. It isn't powerful. It isn't shiny all the time. But the power to change and bless and curse um, is in Jesus Christ. Amen? And finally, Balak trying to pay Balaam to curse Israel, like how many times do we try to manip- do people manipulate the word of God in order to make, right, justify their own agendas, right? Who, um, like, scripture has been used to justify slavery in the past. Scripture is used to justify um, the right of kings to have power absolute power, right? Scripture is used to justify this or that. And as I come and preach, like, I'm aware of that. Like, there are churches, I mean, we have a podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, right? Right? It's very easy for leaders, for spiritual leaders to, to do spiritual abuse, right? To, like, take advantage of our power or even use the word of God to you know, justify our agenda or like use it to weaponize the word of God to say, you don't belong, you don't belong, or this is wrong, or this is right, or to guilt and shame people, or, you know, spiritual abuse. You know what I'm saying. But how do we bribe people? How do we, how do we manipulate the word of God um, because of our own greedy ends? Are you with me, church? What are the annoying, nagging donkeys in your life that get in your way? Could they be God's voice in your life? How are you being bribed in order to distort the truth of the gospel? Oh, that one. Right? How do we make God say what we want him to say? Because we don't want to face the truth. Finally, how are people being cursed in the name of Christianity because of the agenda of wealth or power or the fear of others? Like, how are we using 
the gospel and the word of God to curse other people when God would bless them. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Help us to hold your word in stillness. Your word cannot be bought. It cannot be bribed. Your truth is constant. And um, we come humbly before you uh, to receive your teachings, to receive what you would have to say to us. And if we're being stubborn and going the wrong way, I pray that you will interrupt us just like you interrupt Balaam on his journey. Um, Do whatever it takes, whatever method, whatever means through whoever's mouth to speak truth to us and give us the humility to listen on that day. In Jesus' name, amen.